Well, it's good to be with you all. I'm so encouraged. Uh, Pastor Billy, you want this? Uh, no, you can't. Um, I'm the one who needs it. <laughs> Not that I'm attention to it. Um, I'm reading about a man named Ichabod Spencer. I was telling some of, some of you that the other night. Ichabod Spencer was a, um, he was a pastor. He was a congregationalist here in New York. Um, and then he became Presbyterian. Um, Ichabod Spencer um, was asked by a deacon if, and a group of people from a small, from a congregation, if they can go west and start a church in the 1800s. And so Ichabod Spencer took, uh, held a service and he preached to them, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's will to give you the kingdom. And he preached the sermon. It was, I think, an eight-hour day for all of them. Um, but there were several families there recorded. It's actually recorded in uh, an archive. And these families prayed together. They got together. And then they took a canoe out west. They took a boat to a canoe. They traveled uh, canals. And they made it all the way to Chicago um, and planted a church out there where there was no one there. It was just grassland and marshland. And, and so just singing with you guys this morning reminds me, it's a little church, but made a powerful impact, and it's still inscribed in the histories of New York. Um, that's not my introduction. So I, I just wanted to say that. Um, what I want to do this morning is I want to read for us in John. This is where our text is going to be. Um, I want to read for us beginning... Uh, In chapter 11, verse 55, and then we're going to go into chapter 12, and I'll read um, in chapter 12, verses 9 through 26. I know that in the bulletin it shows that the text that we're going to be focusing on is verses 20 through 26, and that's where we will be. But I just want to provide or, or paint a little bit of a context for what's happening. So John chapter 11 Verse 55, I'll read and then I'll pray and then we'll look together at the passage. John writes in John 11, 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, now Jesus is now in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So... They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus 
found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And here's where our text is this morning. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Mm. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for this little flock that you have, these are your people. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I thank you for my brothers, John, Philip, and Andrew. These are our brothers, faithful men, and we thank you for them. Now, Lord, we pray that just as these Greeks were asking to, to see Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to see our Lord Jesus. Help me to preach. Help us to listen. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. What I want to do as we look at this text is look at it in three sections. We're going to look at the request. We're going to look at the report that's made, and we're going to look at the response that is happening here. What's happening in this text? What is John doing? John is writing these things for us so that we would believe in the Son of God. John is writing this for us so that we would understand and know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. But the reason why I began in chapter 11 is because I want us to understand what, what exactly is happening before we get to the request. There are thousands of Jews that are gathered together to come to a, work, to a feast, to a festival, to commemorate something that the Lord has done. Something that has happened actually in real time, in real space, to a real country, and to a real group of people. In Exodus chapter 11, we, in, 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 ver, in chapter 12 as well, what we see is the Lord in process of judging an entire nation. He is judging the people of Egypt who have held God's people in bondage and in slavery for over 400 years. This is all that they have ever known, bondage and slavery. And so what God is doing is he's with a mighty hand bringing them out under, from under the 
power and the weight of the Egyptian superpower, and he's bringing them out. But before he does, this is what he tells them. He says, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill it on a certain day, and take the blood and put it on the doorposts, because I am about to judge the people of Egypt. And when my angel passes through, I will kill the firstborn son. But when the angel, when my angel sees the blood on the doorpost, he will pass over. Eat your bread and your food in haste, because I will deliver you. And so what's amazing is that several hundreds of years later, they're still celebrating this actual event. They're still coming to celebrate at Jerusalem, and they're ascending this mountain. They're going up to the mountain of Jerusalem. So if you're seeing this, you're witnessing this, and if you're hearing all of these things and you're a Jew, the first thing that you should be thinking about is going back to Isaiah or Micah, where these prophets prophesied that in that day, in the great day of the Lord, the nations will stream up to the mountain of the Lord. In fact, let me actually read it to you. Isaiah chapter 2 Isaiah is describing what will happen on the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2. Now, Isaiah is prophesying during the reign of, or of King Uzziah, and eventually he dies. But he says in chapter 2, verse 1, "...the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem." It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This idea that the nations are streaming up is, is this imagery of water. Instead of going down the mountain, it's going up the mountain. And now what we have is a picture of all of these Jews streaming up to the mountain, to the temple, where they will celebrate the mighty works of God. In fact, you see in Psalm 46, where it says God is a refuge and strength. Later on, the, the psalmist says, to be still and know that I am the Lord. But before that, he says, come behold the wondrous works of the Lord. And so now at the festival of the Passover, all of these Jews are coming to remember the mighty works of the Lord that he did in real time and in real space. And why, why does that matter? Why is this being put into John's narrative? I think one of the reasons why it's being put there is so that the Jews would remember that God is fulfilling His covenant promise to Abraham that in you all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So for a Jew to see hundreds of hundreds of people streaming up to the temple to worship the only true and living God should have been, should have been such an encouragement to them. Their hearts would have been bursting out of their chest and they would have said, Praise God. But secondly... It would have been also an encouragement to those who were not part of God's people as well. Because here in our text, we see that Greeks went up too. So the, what is this request that we're getting to? What is this request that John is getting to? He says, now among, in verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some 
Greeks. These were not Jews. These were not people who belonged to the covenant. These were people who had been alienated from the covenant of God. He, they had been alienated from the promises of God, and they were strangers to the covenant. But somehow they heard about what God has, has done in the lives of his people, and now they want to come. So they probably couldn't get far, but they did travel far and wide to get to the temple. They probably couldn't get all the way into the temple, only to the place where they had sectioned off for the Gentiles. But they still wanted to make the trip. And so John makes that clear, and you can see that even in your text. You don't need the Greek to see that, but you can see that in your text. Now among those. He doesn't say all of the people, including Greeks. He says now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So now you see this little distinction being made between those who were truly Jewish and those who were not part of the covenants. They are coming to see the Lord. And so now you begin to hear Isaiah 2 in the background of your mind. The nations are coming. And so here we have the first inbreaking of the gospel going out, not just to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. So what is the request? You have a group of Greeks coming. They don't ask for anything else. And if you're actually going through John, what you'll see is that there's so many people asking about Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to see who He is. We've heard about Him. We've heard about His name. We heard that He raised people from the dead. So some people are looking for Him because He can supply bread. He fed 5,000 people in one shot. They said, this is the man. This is the guy who's going to liberate us from Roman captivity, and we are, also, we are going to have our nation once again. We're going to have our king, just like we had King David. We're going to have that again. So we want to make him king. So you have that group of people. Then you have the religious leaders who want to maintain the purity of Judaism, and they want to make sure that the standard is being held. They don't like Jesus at all, so they want to kill him. Amongst all other things, the Jewish leaders want to kill him. So they're looking for him too. In fact, in a a couple of chapters before, there's another feast where his brothers are saying, go up to the feast so that everyone can see you. They didn't believe in him. But everyone's looking for Jesus. And now these Greeks are coming because they heard what God has done. It kind of reminds you of, or it reminds me at least, of when Joshua goes into the land And the spies had already gone out there and Rahab heard about the things that the Lord had done to the Egyptians. And she says to Joshua, when we heard, everyone's hearts melted. And she, but she and her household believed. So she said, remember us, please. Remember, don't kill us. Remember us. And so now these Greeks are hearing about what the Lord has done. And they're saying, we want to see Jesus. So the request They go to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. This is the second time in the book of John that John makes a geographical reference to Philip. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 43, where Jesus says to the disciples, he says to Andrew and Peter, who he already enlisted, he says, come, we want to go, I need to go to Galilee. And when he goes to Galilee, who does he find? He finds Philip in Bethsaida. And he says, come. Follow me. So remember the word follow because that comes in verse 25 or 26. These Greeks come to Jesus and they say, or they come to Philip. They don't come to Jesus directly. And they say, Philip, or they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Now in this request, as we're going through this, some of the things we have to look for are the assumptions. What are the assumptions being made? What are the assumptions? How, how, how are they singling out Philip out of all of Jesus' disciples? Why Philip? Well, John doesn't tell us why. He doesn't even tell us the motive behind why these Greeks are coming to, to Philip. But they single him out. And so what are the assumptions? There are at least two assumptions here. The first assumption is a relational assumption. They approach Philip assuming that he is able to show them Jesus. He's not wearing a robe that says, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Probably not. He's not wearing something that shows that he belongs to Jesus. We don't know what he's wearing. And in fact, John doesn't care to tell us what he's wearing or what the identifiable marker is to point Philip out as a follower of Jesus. But the assumption there that, John, that these Greeks are making and John is pointing out is that Philip knows Jesus. And these Greeks are beelining their way to this man. But the second assumption that they're, that, that's being made is accessibility. It's not that, Jesus, that they can go to Philip and know that he knows Jesus, but somehow through Philip, they know that they can get access to Jesus. So look at the request. Sir, they're, they're very respectful. They know that they're Greeks, and they know that they're approaching a Jew who's connected to an even more prominent Jew. And they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In fact, one, one commentator actually makes the point that the tenses in this, in this question is that they repeatedly kept asking Philip, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. How long this is going on, I don't know. But the fact is that they real, they're insistent about seeing Jesus. And they were not alone. Verse 29 tells us that there's a whole crowd watching and seeing what's going to happen. And I wonder sometimes, I, I mean, even just thinking about myself, but I wonder sometimes, can the same thing be said about us? Can people readily point you out and say, that person's with Jesus? I can see that. When you go to work, when you're living through your life, when you're going through your everyday life and just doing the most ordinary things like setting a pot of coffee or you're tying your shoes or whatever it is that's so ordinary and mundane, can people point you out and say, that man or that woman has been with Jesus? They did it with Peter at some point. Peter is like, no, I'm not with that guy. But with Philip, somehow they marked him out. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, as we are going through this life, as we are going to worship the Lord, the context here is worship. As we are going to worship the Lord, can people readily mark us out and say, that person has been with Jesus. That person knows Jesus. The, response, the, the, the requests that these Greeks are making are outsiders. And friends, we have many people that watch us Friends, family, co-workers, people that watch us. Even here, we just moved here and now the community will probably be watching and saying, what kind of church is this? What kind of people come to this church called The Haven? What is The Haven? Is this some sort of place where you can get some counseling or rehab or something like that? What is this? Have those people really been with Jesus? And that, that's really one of the things that we have to always keep in our minds. This should drive us to a deeper communion with Him. Obviously, for, Pete, for Philip and Andrew, 
This was someone that they knew, and everyone knew that they knew Jesus. So we go from the request to now what is the response? Notice what John doesn't say, or notice what Philip doesn't do. Philip doesn't turn around and say, Sure, leave a message and he'll get back to you in a few days. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He turns around and he goes, Andrew. And some people have actually taken this to be that he just wasn't sure what to do. So he turned to someone who was with Jesus before he even came to Jesus, kind of like an older brother and saying, hey, what do do we do? What do we do do here? And the response... or the, the, the report now is both of them decide, you know what, I think it's good to go to see Jesus. So, verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I can't help but talk about prayer at this point. Because really, this is what prayer looks like. We come to our brothers and sisters or people from the world who don't know the Lord come to us and they unload Sometimes they unload too much. Sometimes they unload just a little bit. But ultimately, what they're asking for is, please help. And what is our response? Is our response to say, I'll keep that in mind. Noted. Or is our response to say, hey, I have a friend who just told me about X, Y, and Z. Maybe we should go to the Lord and pray for them. And what... Philip and Andrew, their instinct to do is they turn to go to Jesus. Again, this should now be like a searchlight in your own heart. Where are you? When people come to you and tell you the things that they are struggling with, the things that they are going through, where are you? Do you say, well, I hope it works out for you. And that's what we're prone to do. Or we do the nice Christian thing. We'll say, we'll pray for them and we never do. Philip and Andrew, their immediate response is to report this to Jesus. And so they go. They go, and now we hear the response. And I think verse 23 is where this, our text, the, the crux of this text rests. Verse 23. Because after verse 23, what you really get is Jesus applying what he just said. He says in verse 23, listen to Jesus' response. So if you have the request being made by the Greeks and the report being made by Philip and Andrew, now you have the response being made by Jesus himself. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But Jesus, we just told you Greeks are looking for you. How do you get that from that? Right? Like, Andrew's probably looking and saying, how does that connect to that? He just asked, he just told you, there are Greeks that are waiting to see you. They're knocking on the door. They're saying, hello, can I come in? I just want to see Jesus. The Son of Man is to be glorified. Again, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, wow, this is great. I love the fact that these people came all the way. These are not even Jews. These are Greeks. They came all the way just to see me. This is great. You want to get a Torah? I'll sign it for them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't go out and immediately shake their hands like, it's nice to see you. What does Jesus do? Jesus' mind is beelining his way to the mission that he has come for. He says, the hour 
did not come. He doesn't say that the hour came or the hour is coming. He says the hour has come. This is it. This is, this is the time right now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, we pause just for a second. Let's, let's examine the language. Why are you saying Son of Man? Why are you talking about the glorification of the Son of Man? For the Greeks, they probably don't know this, but if you're Jewish, you're, the lights in your brain are going off. Because now you're thinking Daniel chapter 7. So, let me read to you what Daniel chapter 7 says. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is under the reign of Babylon, and he says that he has a vision in the night. Daniel chapter 7 Verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. Now the ancient of days is God. And now he sees another figure approaching the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You have Jews approaching their rabbi and they're saying, Greeks want to see you. You have the rabbi's response now saying, the Son of Man, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That response brings Philip and Andrew's mind back to Daniel chapter 7, as well as chapter 12 in John's Gospel, verse 12, the triumphal entry. Everyone wants to make him a king. And now he's talking about the Son of Man being glorified. Is this the time? Is this now the hour that Daniel's vision is going to be fulfilled, where Jesus is going to be crowned king? He's going to be the conquering king? Well, Jesus explains. He explains, and he doesn't just stop there. The aim for this text is the glorification of Christ. And before we get to, the, before we get to Jesus' own application, one of the things that we have to understand when it comes to Jesus, I was just telling this to the college group over at Woodruff Road in Greenville, South Carolina, when it comes to Jesus, the Bible doesn't present to us a neutral zone where we can just say, I'll take Jesus in 40 years. I'll take Jesus in 10 years. I'll take Jesus when I'm financially ready, when I have my family settled down, when I'm raising my kids. But for right now, I'm just going to pursue my career. The Bible says either you take him or you leave him. If you take him, you live. If you don't, you die. That's it. It's just that black and white. Well, why do you have to be so harsh and so black and white about it? Because the Bible tells us to. This is the kind of Jesus that we serve. You either take him and live because he is the creator of all things. He is the one who has created the world. In fact, John opens the gospel by telling us that he has created all things. All things were made through him. So if the Creator comes in, puts on skin, and now comes and tells you, believe in me and you will live, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins, what do you do? Well, I'll take a rain check on that. I'll think about this because I don't know how this squares with other religions and there's other religions. Maybe I'll just go ahead and feed my dog and I'll come back next week and 
I'll, maybe when I'm done with my career, maybe I'll work it out. I'm, I'm so glad for you that you accept Jesus, but that's not for me. And we hear a lot of that talk around us. And what begins to happen as people tell us these things is that we begin to adopt that same mindset too. Well, okay, well, maybe I'll get back to you when I'll get back to you. I made a reference to Ichabod Spencer earlier. He was the kind of pastor that would stay in your home. When he heard that you were struggling in your home, he would come to your home and say, okay, what's going on? And he would not leave until he convinced you that you were in the, in the wrong when it came to understanding who Jesus is. And he convinced you that Christ came and died. He did that with one old lady, an elderly lady. She said, nope, I'm convinced that God is not hearing my prayers anymore. And he said, can I show you how you're wrong according to the scripture? She says, you can show me all you want, but I'm not going to listen. Three visits later, he said, woman, <laughs> he said, woman, I will not leave your house until you understand that as a blood-bought saint, Christ has come and died for you and he hears your prayers. And she broke down and wept. Amen. Where is our zeal? These Greeks are coming to Jesus. Philip and Andrew are coming to Jesus. And now Jesus is talking about his own glory. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, here's where he begins to apply this. Unless a grain, he describes his own ministry first before he gets to us. Truly, truly. In other words, I'm saying this absolutely, this is absolutely true. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' aim is fruit. He doesn't care to be alone. He wants the people that he came to die for to be with him where he is. In fact, John says this, and John records this for us in chapter 11, verse 49. Listen to what he says. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. This is Caiaphas talking to all of the Pharisees. You guys know nothing at all. Get out of here, he says. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And listen to this. This is where you come in. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Jesus' ministry is not a selfish ambition that Jesus has. He is coming for you. And I know that because most of us are Gentiles. Most of us would not necessarily be Greek, some Dominican, some Puerto Rican. But the fact is, is that we were at one point alienated from the life of God. We had no promise. We were without hope in this world. We had nothing. And if it wasn't for Christ coming to die on the cross, this is the hour in which the Son of Man is to be glorified. This is what He came for. He didn't come to say the nice things on the Hallmark cards. He didn't come to make people feel better about themselves. He didn't come to give people all of these nice wealth and riches that people have so that they can continue on in their sins. He came to make dead people live. And we see that with Lazarus. And what sin does is it tries to undo the work of God. So that what we see, the Pharisees, they're trying to kill Lazarus again. But Christ comes to, so that we would live. 
And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, that's him, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's you. So, where do you come in? Verse 25 and verse 26. Where do the Greeks come in? Verses 25 and 26. Where does Philip and Andrew come in? Verses 25 and 26. This is the cost of following Jesus. So, in a sense, what we get from Jesus at first is that he's kind of dismissive when Greeks are asking for an audience with Jesus. But in reality, he's getting to a deeper issue. And he's telling them the cost of following him. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life, qualifier here, in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, what's being contrasted is the love for God versus a love for this world. Either you love God and you hate the world or you hate the world or you hate God and you love this world. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Either you are loving God and hating this world. Now, for many people, they would probably say, well, I love this world too. Are you telling me that I have to turn my back on going out on a fishing trip? Are you telling me that I can't even take a vacation to the Amalfi Coast? Are you telling me that I can enjoy a cruise with my family? No, this is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, if you're holding on to these things, if this is where your eyes settle, if they can't rise higher than the horizon line of this world and all of your possessions, then guess what? You will lose your life. And try as you might, but the sand of this world will slip right through your fingers, and next thing you know, Jesus, you'll be standing before him, and he'll say, I never knew you. But the flip side is whoever loves him will keep their life, will guard it, will watch over it. This is the thing that they are living for. They are living for Jesus. Whoever loves his life loses it. He says this in Luke 9, 24. Whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Three things in this response that Jesus points out. His glory, and not just his glory, but he points out communion with him and honor from the Father. He points out his glory in this response because this is why he came, to be glorified. But it's not just, part of the glorification with the Lord is not just Him. It involves you. And this is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, when that last trumpet sounds. John Stott actually makes this comment, this commentator. He writes that when Jesus comes, He comes to be glorified, not by His saints, not through His saints, but in His saints. So that when He is glorified, you are glorified. And why are you glorified? Is it because of the works that you've contributed to your salvation? No, the only thing that we can contribute is our sin. That's it. Why are we glorified? Because we are united to Him. We love Him. We did not love this world so much that we said, I'll deal with you, Jesus, later. Let me just... I just need to get this promotion and and I'll, I'll, I'll think about you later. I'll think about you when I have more time. No. 
Here's the question. When do you know that your life will come to an end? Jesus doesn't give an answer except to his brothers. He says, my time, your time is always ready. My time has not yet come. You don't know when your life will end. You don't know if you'll make it to the end of this sermon. You don't know if you'll make it to the end of Haven Food and Fellowship. You don't know. And so the appeal is, if you want to follow Christ, stop holding on to this world. You enjoy the, thing, the world for the things that it has in order to bring people to Christ, just like Philip and Andrew brought these Greeks to, to Christ. But you don't hold on to it in such a way so as to say, I love this and I'll think about Jesus later. He is not an accessory to your life. He, he, in this response, he discusses his own glorification. He discusses communion. There you are. Communion. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Do you hear the reversal of the Garden of Eden? Yeah. Do you hear that? He tells Adam and Eve, get out. And then he puts a flaming sword with a cherubim right there to guard the way into the presence of God. How does Moses get into the presence of God so that he sees God face to face on God's terms? But you got to be careful, Moses. How does anyone else try? Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they try, and they didn't do it the way God wanted it done. And they were struck down for it. How do you get into the presence of God to commune with your Creator face to face? You know that the military is spending so much, so much money on these UFO projects. And you know what it is? These UFO projects are putting people's eyes away from the Creator and onto the creation, wondering if there's extra, extraterrestrial life out there. But they're missing the point. The creator of all things has come into this world to save you. And the main issue between you and the creator is sin. And God has made a way. And so he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And you see this picked up again in his prayer in John 17. Father, I wish that they would be with me so that where I am, they would be there also. That they would see my glory. This is his prayer, his desire for your life right now here at the Haven in Long Island, April 23rd, 11, 12 a.m., is that you would commune with him. So we saw the request. We saw the report. We saw the response. But wrapping all of this up, I want to look at just a few things. First, The whole Trinity is involved here. Mm -hmm. The whole work of the Godhead is involved in your following and serving Him. How do you get to following and serving the Lord? Well, chapter 3, you must be born from above. The work of the Spirit. How do you come to Christ? The Father has to call you. Mm -hmm. How do you accept Christ? The Spirit working in your heart. You don't know where the Spirit goes. He goes wherever He wishes. And you hear the call of Christ, come and follow me. John's aim in this gospel account is that by reading 
and hearing of these things that he writes down, we would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The whole Godhead is at work in you. This text, secondly, is about worship. It begins with a feast dedicated to the worship of God and His mighty works in the Passover. But ultimately, they're going to see the great Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is what John says in chapter 1. If you're Herod today, if you're sitting and you're like Herod and you're listening to this message, you might be tempted to want to see Jesus the way Herod saw Jesus. Luke 23, verse 8, he wanted to see Jesus. He was just hoping just to see a circus act in front of him, hoping that he would perform some miracle. He didn't care about him. Is that you? Do you just come to Sunday morning just to hear a circus act of what Jesus did and then go home and continue on without even thinking about Jesus? No, this text is about worship. How do we approach the Lord? Well, through the Lord's Supper, through the Lord's mediation between us and Himself, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also about glorification, and it's also about joy. The Lord's joy is that His people will be with Him. And actually, Hebrews tells us that He's not ashamed to call you His brother or sister. Think about that. How many times has someone offended you and you're in the company of other people and you don't want to be associated with them just for like five minutes? We're done. Like, do that weird thing that you do somewhere else, but not here. And what has happened at that point is that person has fallen short of your standards, but how far have you fallen short of God's standards? And He wants to be associated with you. The words of our Lord should produce joy in us. And if we don't see this, there's something wrong. You're not saved. You're not, you're not regenerate. Either that or you're so dull that you need the work of the Spirit to drill into the cement blocks of your heart and unearth what He has already started, what He began in you. And He will do that. He will do that if you are His. Finally, the world longs to be honored apart from the Lord. They want to say the right things. They want to affirm the things it wants. But here, finally, we see that the Lord honors His people. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What a joy it is to be honored by the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth. We didn't do it ourselves. The Lord calls us into sweet communion with Him. He honors us because we honor our Lord Jesus Christ, whose fruit harvest we are because we love the one who loved us first. That's the Christian life. Amen. So Haven, when the world tells you that they wish to see Jesus, whatever the motives may be, John doesn't tell us the motives, whatever the motives are, when the world tells you, when your children, when your uncles and your aunt who doesn't believe in the Lord when they tell you that they wish to see Jesus. They may not just tell you, I want to see Jesus. But as they're watching your life, show them Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you that you've called us into fellowship with you. And we thank you that we are yours. You know us by name. And we pray that 
whatever was not helpful, that you would cause it to fall away. But whatever was helpful, to draw the eye, the heart to Christ, we pray that that would remain, and that your Spirit would use that to the praise and the glory of your grace. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you.